Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we are very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed for most of their lives and some right into their 80s. It's always amazing to hear their stories, and in this show, we will hear from previously recorded interviews and live concert performances. We will learn about their start in the jazz scene, their high points and challenges, and finally their continued passion for this art form. Our musical guests are familiar to many, and we hope by the end of this broadcast, you will know them even better. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends, Ahmed Abdul-Karim, Ruben Ristrom, Bob Gilbertson, and a special tribute to the late Jimmy Bowman. The featured musicians for the jazz legends are backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Graydon Peterson on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and KBEM. Our first Minnesota jazz legend is Ahmed Abdul Karim. He joined us for the Live Jazz Legends concert at the Minnesota History Center. Ahmed played music in his hometown of Baltimore, then Canada, and then came to Minnesota in 1973, choosing to stay because people were so friendly. He has headlined his own group, Ahmed and the Creators, and has worked on numerous television shows, nightclubs, and outdoor concerts. Here's Ahmed Abdul Karim. So you got to Minnesota how? Where were you originally from? Baltimore, Maryland. I know you went to another area before you landed in Minneapolis. I went to uh, Winnipeg, Canada, but it was so cold up there, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it, so. But then tell them why you landed in Minnesota. Why did you stay? Well, because it was so clean, and the trees, and the people were smiling sincerely. So that's, that's why That was I your welcome mat? That was my welcome mat. All right. <laughs> Play some music for us, would you? for 25 years and he came to Minneapolis and gave me a holy Quran and he said son if you want to become a Muslim call me over the phone I didn't really read nothing but all of a sudden something just came over in my heart and I called him I went to Mecca I did the pilgrimage you know in, in 84 me and my wife just to be on a, on a plane and you're coming in the Jeddah and everybody's singing, oh God, here we come. 
I mean, you just, tears be flowing. That's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Continue our conversation. Why the trumpet? What happened in your youth? Uh, years ago, when I heard Tommy Dorsey play I'm Getting Sentimental Over You, I wanted a trombone. But my grandmother and grandfather raised me and they didn't have enough money to get me a trombone. So then I ended up playing a bugle in the drum and bugle corps. And what and that, age were you? I guess I was about 10 or 11, I guess. So. All right, so then the Korean War broke out, and my cousin got drafted in, and he never came back. So I didn't want really to get drafted in the Army, so I enlisted in the Navy. <laughs> and then I finally got my trombone, I bought it. But I was board ship, and I, did, you know, like, I didn't have nobody to teach me, and I got discouraged. And I wasn't making much progress, so I just pawned the trombone. Did you say something like the guys on the ship decided that they didn't want to hear the trombone anymore? Yeah, I got, I got kind of subtle hints about that. <laughs> yeah, I got some subtle hints about so, that. So, yeah, you sold, so you sold the trombone, yeah. and, then, and then what happened? Then when I came out of the Navy in 1956, I saw this trumpet, and it's similar to the bugle, just, you know, didn't have valves. So okay. I've been with the trumpet since I was 21. Did you fall in love with the trumpet? Yeah, I fell in love with it, you know. Then when I heard Miles Davis, that really, <laughs> that really helped me out. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I don't blame you on that one. Yeah, well, you know, you know, I met Miles Davis. If you approach Miles Davis and he didn't know you, he may curse you out. So Miles was playing, he would play the head and then he would solo and walk out into the audience. So then I walked up to him, I said, Miles, I'm a trumpet player from Baltimore, Maryland. Can you tell me something to help me out? I guess he must have seen my sincerity. So he looked at me and he grabbed my hand, put it on his stomach, and yeah. said, See, get it right down here, man, right down here, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I almost fainted. <laughs> I was thought he was going to curse me out, you know. Oh. <laughs> you know. And then two years later, I saw him in New York at Smalls, and he was sitting there taking his trumpet out, and he remembered me, you know. So I, I said, Miles, I said, I practiced what you told me. Well, did it help you, man? Did it help you? And I said, yeah, it helped me a lot, you know? All right, then three years later in Baltimore, I'm sitting here, and I guess the bandstand was over there with Fred sitting right there. And he played the head, he soloed, and then he walked up to me and hit me on the leg. How you doing, man? And I ain't seen him in three years. He said, let's go over here and talk. So I go over on the bar, and we sitting over there talking. And I said, Miles, when you did that album, Sketches in Spain, the tune, I think it was Solia, I said, that brought tears to my eyes, you know. And he said, oh, man, that wasn't nothing but slur work. That's all that was. That's just slur work. 
And that album's uh, uh, popular even in Spain, man. So, uh, so he obviously made an impression on you, and uh, oh, obviously yeah. to the point of you wanting to choose a tune of his to do today as well, with Bless. all blues, in case you didn't know that. Yeah. Were you playing music in Canada as well? Oh, yeah. And then when you got here, how long before you had a chance to play music? I met Gene Adams, right? Okay. and he had a jazz workshop. So I was playing with the jazz workshop, and I guess, you know, gigs came, kind of came out of that. But then you also created a band under your name, oh, right? Oh, yeah, I did that. And it's yeah. called? Ahmed and the Creators, yes. All right. And you did a television show with this band, it says. Yeah, there's a program called Harambe, and that came on every Sunday morning. Channel 11 on Wednesday didn't do the recording, yeah. But anyway, you've done a lot of club gigs around town as oh, well, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, yeah. What's your favorite? Tricks. Yeah, I worked there for a long time. When you came here, did you get married? Did you have a family? Yeah, I was here about uh, three months and got married. Had four kids. Gave my boys trumpet lessons because I started Omar when he was 15 months old. That's the story I want oh, you yeah, to tell. That's true. So tell them how you did that, though. We had two trumpets, and I gave him one trumpet, and I said, Omar. <laughs> and then he said, and I put the horn to his mouth. And then we got along, and that's how I started. And we just started blowing long tones, and then from that, the scales, and you know, that, that's how it went. You that's know? pretty cool, and hear him you play know, today, oh my gosh. I guess I've been with Omar since he come out of his mother. Well, there you go. Oh yeah. Wow. And then when he graduated from South High, he wanted to go to college, go to New York. So I took him to New York, took him to uh, the new school in New York. He auditioned, he got accepted. Oh my. And then I brought him back here. And we were at the airport, I put him on the train. He was happy, I was sad, you know. So I put him on Typical the train. Typical parent statement, you I'd know, say. Went back to my car and cried like a baby. <laughs> then I moved to New York with him for two years. You wow, know? that's beautiful. And we got a few gigs up there. And then I came back after two years. Then I went back when he graduated, and he conducted a big band which had his original compositions. Yeah, and That's then, then cool. he said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to bring my father to the bandstand. So then we go up there and we play together in front of the people. And then we finished playing, he grabbed me and hugged me. I ain't gonna never forget that. Ladies and gentlemen, Ahmed Abdul-Karim. Thank you, Patty.
the city bus for 17 years, and uh, I spoke to everybody that got on the bus. You know, we hear a lot about society these days. Did you experience things that you could see a trend changing with people in the city streets? When I came here in 73, everybody was smiling at each other. Now they're not doing that as much. It's not as open. I mean, I find sometimes you have to open people up. You know, once you open them up, then they, they talk to you. for young people coming up in the music business? Once they realize that music is what they want to do, they can never let anybody deter them, not even their mother or father, because God put that in your heart. It's in your heart, so just stay with it. It'll come. And if it don't come, you're on the journey. You're on the journey. You are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is guitarist Ruben Ristrom. He's been a major figure in our jazz scene since he started in the business, and he too joined us at the Minnesota History Center for the Live Jazz Legends concert. He has played consistently for over 50 years. He's worked as a vocalist, guitarist, writer, banjo player, but he also went to school to get his degree in fine arts from the University of Minnesota. Here's Ruben Ristrom. Ruben, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, and just I'm so honored to be here. I want them to know a little bit about who you are. You're not originally from the Twin Cities. Tell me about uh, where you were born. Tell me about uh, some of the places you've played. Okay, I was born in uh, Hastings, Minnesota in 1943, the youngest of five kids. And uh, I remember my dad was a Swedish immigrant, and my mother's parents were Sweden, and had to come over here and learn the language. I remember when we got indoor plumbing. Lived out in Egan on Pilot Knob Road. And uh, my wife hates when I say this, but the house was so small and there were so many of us that I didn't sleep alone until I was married. (laughs) It's a joke, of course. But I went to the University of Minnesota and I wanted to be an artist and and an art teacher. And so I uh, got my bachelor's degree in 65 and earned my master of fine arts two years later, taught a couple classes at the U in printmaking. Uh, My music history 
And my mother said, every home needs to have a piano and a dog. And we always did. And I studied piano from age five to 10, but I never was a good piano player or a good reader. And the reason was, at the end of a lesson, I'd say, Mrs. Schiffner, would you please play next week's lesson for me? And so she did, certainly. She turned the page and played it, and then I knew it. Learning to read was a challenge, but I have been gifted with the most important gift, and that is a wonderful memory. I tell people I carry around in my head two fake books and a hymnal. <laughs> so I know, I know lots of songs with the lyrics and everything, and I don't know why. It's just a gift. You didn't always stay in the Twin Cities. From what I understand, you lived uh, elsewhere for a while. Well, I didn't live elsewhere, but as my reputation grew and I got to know more people, and people would come and hear me play and say, I want to bring you down to St. Louis or Wisconsin. I used to play the Lacrosse Jazz Festival for 23 consecutive years from the time it first started till at the end of it, and Kansas City and uh, Denver and Colorado Springs and uh, Sacramento, California, the Jazz Jubilee, and uh, just all over I would go and play, and I would go out on concert tours either with bands or I even did a couple of years as a solo artist, which it's, it's okay, but it's, and it's lucrative, but it's pretty lonesome. When you think about your expansive career, what would you say stands out as a highlight? I've been fortunate in getting called to play with some of the musicians that were my heroes. I got to play with Charlie Bird. I loved him when I was young. And when Herb Ellis came to town, we'd get in touch and he'd always invite me to come and play with him. I got to play with Joe Pass once. He was really my idol, the best guitar player in my mind that ever lived. And in a recording studio with Ray Brown for a couple of tunes, I found that the great musicians, the really great ones, are also very nice people. Absolutely. Ruben Ristrom, everybody, let's hear another tune from him, okay? Thank you.
jazz friends who he did some work for gave him a banjo and a four-string tenor guitar. He said, give these to Ruben because he's very musical. So no I kidding. got, at 10 years old, I got my first banjo and a good one. And it was it was given to this friend of my dad's in 1926 for Christmas. And it was in pristine shape. So I started playing banjo. And uh, two years later, I saved up enough money. And my mother took me to Montgomery Wards. And I bought my first guitar for $12.50. Yeah, and, and there was a nine ninety five guitar, too. <laughs> My mother said, get the better one. I'll pop for the difference. I played it for you know a number of years, and uh, my oldest brother was in the Navy, and he was in the South Pacific. He brought back for me a really cheesy, solid-body electric guitar and a little amplifier, and that was the beginning of my electric guitar. Who influenced you in your playing? Well, I did listen to all these great, Great Brunswick 78s with Big Spiderbeck and Bunny Berrigan playing who's I Can't Get Started With You. That yes, was his sure. big hit. Oh, and the Boswell sisters. And I was just immersed in what was really, I thought, good music. And I listened to Lake Hammond on KSTP AM Jazz Corner. And he played Julie London's Cry Me a River. And that was Barney Kessel on guitar. I said, Barney Kessel. I had never heard guitar played like that before. So really? Monday, well, I took a bus downtown, Musicland, and I looked at the stacks there and I saw Barney Kessel with the pole winners, Ray Brown on bass and Shelly Mann on drums. I thought, this looks like something I'd like because I'm used to working with that combination. Yes. So I started listening and it just pulled me into a whole different world. Barney Kessel was my first guitar teacher. things that I learned listening to Barney Kessel and Ray Brown and Shelley Mann, I developed a concept of playing in a group with no piano because I was the chord player. So I had a style of playing, which I still have because I'm very comfortable without piano. Let me 
go back to um, one of your original comments. You said someone gave you a very good banjo when you were a young boy. And I don't know that a lot of people know that you are quite the banjo player, and you indeed were in a Dixieland band that, from your mouth, you said it was one of the best Dixieland bands around. I didn't say one of It was. Oh, (laughs) correct me. It's the best Dixieland band not only have I ever played with, but I've ever heard. You know, and I played with Doc Evans and Harry Blondes and those guys, the real masters, the old pros. But this record uh, and the guys that played on it had the same kind of a love for traditional jazz that I had and a great skill for playing it. advice for a younger person who's wanting to get into the music industry and they love jazz? I would give the advice that Duke Ellington gave to someone that asked him, what is the secret to playing jazz? And this is what I would tell those young people. i say, listen, listen, listen. That's where it all is. still want to say musically? Every time I pick up my guitar and play, I want to just do the best I can at that time. Mm-hmm. 
You are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Bob Gilbertson, our next Minnesota jazz legend, became interested in the drums at the early age of five after listening to his cousin play music at their family home. He's played for the Grand Old Opry live broadcast from the Flame Room in Minneapolis and has been the leader and drummer for the band The Riverboat Ramblers. They won the Aquatennial Contest for Best Band 22 years in a row and then went on to do nightclub work, private parties, and corporate events, making The Riverboat Ramblers and Bob Gilbertson a mainstay in our musical world in the Twin Cities. Here's Bob Gilbertson. had records of drummers that inspired you, but to be able to watch them live, so far that's what I'm getting from you. Whether yeah. you were a five-year-old or now you're in high school, watching live drummers really well, Do you want to hear you. the best part of it? Jane Krupa came to the flame and I was about 16 and he'd put a chair in the alley and open the door so I could sit in the alley and watch him play. He knew of you? Well, I introduced myself to him and that I want to watch you play. And so I would be sitting in the alley about 10 feet away from him on his backside, you know, but watching him play. One of the other good connections in Minneapolis, Chester Growth, owned the music store downtown, was just a phenomenal influence in my life. And why? When I was 12 or 13, I asked him if I could buy a drum and put it on lay-by. They had some sort of a program where I could pay $5 a week for mowing lawns and shoveling sidewalks and... I don't think I got it right away. I had to pay so much, and then I got my drum, my snare drum. And he let me do that. And we became friends. The whole basement of the music store was full of drum sets. And I'd go down there and play on the drums. And, and one time I was playing on the drums down there and just playing a ride on, the, on a hi-hat. And somebody came up to me and he said, uh, I like the way you play. I'd like to hire you for my band this Saturday night. It was a fraternity job over at the U. And, but I was went in and, and to buy sticks or something, and he was at the counter with about four guys. As I got closer to the counter, the, he turned to him and said, there's Bob Gilbertson, one of the better drummers in town. And they all turned to me and said, do you want a job? I was 20 years old, I think. I don't think I was 21. And he said, uh, do you want a job? And I said, uh, yeah, where, when? And he said, it's the Flame, which was a country western band. And this is the Flame on Nicollet Avenue? Right, on okay. 14th. The Dave right. Dudley, Marvin Rainwater, who's going to find me a bluebird, and Dave Dudley, six days on the road. And they broadcast every Saturday night live to the Grand Ole Opera. And we had every big star came in there that was on the Grand Ole Opera. Well, name a couple. Uh, Gene Autry was one, but okay. I remember Carl Perkins with blue suede shoes. Sure. But, I mean, the one, you know, was really fun, too, because several of those country guys like jazz, and Leon McCullough was a steel guitar player who wrote a tune called the Steel Guitar Rag, I think, and they liked swing, and they knew I was a swing drummer, a jazz right. drummer, so we'd get together during the day and play jazz. And it was all these country guys. And we'd play jazz during the day. And then play the country at night. Yeah, play the country at night. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was so I, I had such was. a bond with them then. 
the flame was a kid can gangster hangout. He had a presence here in the Twin Cities, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Well, Abe and Ray Perkins, Perkansky, were the owners. Okay. And they were cousins or nephews of Kid Can. So that was $25 a night. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday would be like about $1,000 a week today. I bought a new I'm in college. I bought a new car. Well, sometimes those things pay the bills, don't they? And, but they were good country players. They're all very professional in what they did. Hey, Bobby, come on up here. I want everyone to get to know you a little bit better. Somebody said, have you been playing the drums all your life? I said, not yet. See, you do a job with guys like this, and you're laughing the whole break. It's pretty darn fun. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. It's all I wanted to do all my life. I grew up in North Minneapolis in a duplex, and my cousin lived downstairs. He was 10 years older, and he had a big band. And I would sit on the stairs and try and make myself invisible, but listen and watch the drummer, and I just fell in love with music. And my dad sang, my mother played the piano, so I grew up in that environment. But when did you actually start playing a musical instrument, and what instrument was it? Well, I was five years old, and I was enthralled by the drums. I collected catalogs and made myself a practice pad and started collecting Gene Krupa records and Buddy Rich and anything I get my hands on with drums. You were really interested in starting at age five? Yeah, I studied piano when I was young, but I didn't like it because I wanted the teacher to teach me jazz or chords oh, and, yeah. and instead of Claire de Lune. And, <laughs> But it was a good start, you know, a, a good foundation for music, you know, to play sure. the piano, of course. And, and you ended up playing the drums. So what was your first experience? What was your first... First experience, I think I got a call from some friends to go to Yellowstone Park to play for the summer. I was 15, 16 years old, and we went to Yellowstone, and I asked my folks if I could go, and they said yes, and so I spent the whole summer in Yellowstone Park, probably one of the most wonderful experiences I ever had in my life. Wasn't the band that you were in kind of a top-notch band at Well, that when point I got too? home from Yellowstone Park, I was a senior in high school, and there was a band that played for Homecoming, and it was called Denny Murphy. They were just the top, top band. Jim Hewitt, the bass player, went with Ella Fitzgerald, and Frank Sinatra, the piano player Mickey McLean, went with Buddy Rich. Buddy Brisboy, the trumpet player from Edina, went with Stan Kenton. It was that kind wow. of a band, you know, and they were just incredible. They would take a record, Arnie Nass played, and John Zedlig, and they would write an arrangement right off the Basie or Les Brown record. Exactly as you were listening to it? Exactly, it was recorded, and they'd really? give me that. They didn't know how to write drum music, but they'd give me the album, the vinyl, and say, here, listen to this, and this is what we're going to play tonight. And it was unbelievable to play with a band that tight, to play that wonderful music. Were you busy with these guys? Did oh, you yeah, we were playing three, as... four nights a week. Were you in college at the time? I was a senior in high school, and they all graduated from college, so the band kind of broke up. You had to re then remain busy. You started busy, you played through college, and now here you are. You're working at the Flame, and you're probably working six nights a week. Yeah, and I, that, and I went to college during the day and played wow. every night in a nightclub. And, went, and then from there, I went into the Fifth Army Band in San Francisco, came out from the Army Band and went to work at the White House, which was a great big nightclub in Golden Valley. In Golden Valley, right. And we backed singers and that would come in from L.A. and 
Weren't you also connected to the prom ballroom and Jules Herman? Got a job at the prom. We backed all the acts that came into the prom. From there, uh, the Riverboat Ramblers came in to do a show. They did like 20 minutes or half an hour show, and, and I'm working four hours for like 50 bucks a night, and they were making 100 bucks for a half an hour. <laughs> now that this doesn't make sense. So the drummer said, I'm leaving to take over the band at uh, Disney World, I think, in Florida. So he said, why don't you take my job with this band? And so I auditioned with him and got the job, went into Diamond Jim's, and the uh, leader of the band got drafted, so all the guys in the band turned to me and said, why don't you take it over? And I was the youngest member of the band. Talk about so, Diamond Jim's in Lilydale, just for a minute. Yeah. Diamond, yeah, right? It was a very interesting and unique place. Tell, talk a little bit the about it. The uh, girls swung from trapeze up on the ceiling, and I think they were the waitresses, or else they were professional gymnasts. I mean, they were incredible. <laughs> but we brought in Pete Barbeauty, Jose Mellis. I mean, the place was packed every night. So then uh, Connie Hector just started a magazine called Connie's Insider. The, the union wouldn't let some of these rock and roll players in the union. They wow. couldn't read music, and uh, I don't know, he was opposed to the rock scene at the time. And he called me and he said, I'll put an ad in the paper for you for nothing. Well, I just figured he'd do a one-inch by two-inch little ad in the paper. Well, the paper came out on Saturday, and I had a half a page in this magazine, Riverboat Ramblers Available. The phone rang off the hook, and the Holiday Inn downtown had this club called Pierre's, and they needed a band. They just fired the band the Saturday night before. Oh, my gosh. They were all drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Pierre's had an interesting concept. It, it had reinforced tables, and all the girls got up on the tables and danced on the tables. Oh. And Jerry Schroeder was the booking entertainment director and writer of all the music, and he came from Sheik's which was a big nightclub that had shows. What year is Pierre's? Well, I don't know. I was 30, so it must have been the 70s. And it lasted for like four or five years. But I hated it. Every night we went in, it was the same thing. It just got so boring. Being a jazz musician, it got so boring looking at women dancing on a table? Yeah. <laughs> no. Ruben was on the band with was me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm sure the two of you could tell some good rotten stories. Yeah, no, we had some great stories. Yeah. I want to just fast forward a little bit. Riverboat Ramblers was originally country and became a jazz band, but it also became a corporate band, right? And you well, did music for a lot of corporations throughout the country. Right, exactly. Well, what happened was when we were, I think at Pierre's, they had an Aquitaineo band contest. So we got into the contest, and I think we won $5,000, which is a lot of money at that time, and it was sponsored by Schweigert Meat Company. And then we went back the second year and won it again. Some of these big corporations that would come in, they bring all those people into Pierre's, and they said to me, could you bring all these girls and do a show for us for our convention? And so I saw the light, you know, I said, my God, this is what I want to do. I want... <laughs> I don't want to play in this smoking nightclub anymore. I want to do these shows for corporations. For not 50, not 100, but a lot more money, too, yeah, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, and there was rehearsals, there was travels, and, uh, I, and I told everybody in the band, you better have a good time because this is not going to last. These corporate people are way too smart. 
to pay us this kind of money and to have this much fun and to fly us into this and do all these things. And I was home, and about a week, the phone rang and said, you know, we'd really like you to go to San Francisco and do that same thing. I mean, I couldn't believe it. forgot to mention something really important, and that is your work with Fletcher's on Lake Minnetonka. How long did you have the music there over the weekend? That's a pretty good story, too. Bill Nagley called me and wanted me to play for the 4th of July. I just assumed he wanted the Dixieland stuff, so I had the band kind of set up that way. He called me, I guess the Monday after the 4th of July, and said, I want you to play all summer. So I just hired everybody that I thought we could play jazz and, and standards and things. So first one I called was your brother, okay. Billy, who was just getting out of high school. And then I got Jimmy Hamilton with Billy and Jimmy Hamilton. That's all you need. And you guys were there for 30 years. years. It is 30 years. Yeah. Oh, my. Bob, when you look back on the years you've been in the music business, do you have one thing that stands out as your favorite highlight? The Murphy Band, for sure. And I put on that jacket. I was part of a 16-piece band. Everybody breathed and played together so beautifully. And the charts, the music, and the audience. And today, we have reunions. Really? Once a year, the ones that are left of that band, because we all felt the same way. It was the most magical time of my life, musically. If you had advice to give to a young up-and-coming player, what would you say to them? Learn every part of music you possibly can. One of the biggest things, I think, is to learn the business part, you know, and, and not just the playing part, but how to, to dress and be on time to the gig and to handle yourself with other musicians. And I, I, there are just so many interactive things besides playing. Once you learn to play, there's an 80, 90 percent of other things that need to come into play. Bob Gilbertson, everybody. Thank you, thank you. You are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is the late Jimmy Bowman, keyboardist and vocalist extraordinaire. Jimmy came to prominence in the south side of Chicago in the late 1940s, performing with good friends Sarah Vaughn, George Shearing, Earl Father Hines, and Nat Cole. He moved to Minneapolis where he hosted many star-studded jam sessions in 1952, and he also hosted many celebrity golf tournaments. Jimmy received a day proclaimed in his honor in 1992 from Governor Arnie Carlson. His son, Jimmy Bowman Jr., joined us to talk about his father, and near the end of this interview, we will have a very special surprise. Here's Jimmy Bowman. I wanted to honor your dad. He would be 100 coming up in this fall. You're doing something really cool, and you're re-releasing some of his works, right? I'm re-releasing the album, the last one I produced for him in 83, I think it was. So we'll have it out in the next few months. 
Talk a little bit about your dad. He was originally from the south well, side of Chicago, is that right? Well, he was right? born in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and he got to the south side like many people from the south. He was young, and he was a great singer, and uh, he used to go hear old Father Hines. And the people that knew him knew he could sing. And he, in those days, you know, there were bands around like you know, Earl Hines Orchestra. And uh, after a while, he got to know Earl. Well, he came up with Joe Williams, and he knew the Cole brothers, Nat and Ike especially, because Freddie was a little younger. Okay. Eddie South was one of his best friends. And some of these guys are a little older, like Nat and Eddie and sure. Earl. They were older, so they were mentors to him. And so when I grew up in Minneapolis, these guys, whenever they'd come through, they'd come over. And they'd wake me up Saturday morning. You know, you're a kid. You got off school. This is your morning to sleep. All this darn jazz music every morning. <laughs> and I'd come downstairs, and, and I'm trying to get my mom to make me pancakes. That's all I remember. Get the pancakes. But I couldn't sleep because they're beating drums and they're playing piano. They hadn't gone to bed yet. They hadn't no, gone no, no. To bed. This is what they do. I mean, they're in town. They come over. Oh, they'd gone to bed. Oh. They'd leave their hotels, and they'd come over, and they they you know, had a little it. coffee, maybe with something in it, and then you, <laughs> and then uh, you'd play because they were happy to be together. A lot of them had gigs at night, especially sure. on a Saturday. So uh, I got to meet a lot of them in my bathrobe. Okay, so this project that you're working on, the re-release, what is your hope? What is your dream for? Well, I want people to hear him mostly singing because that's really what he did. Okay, he was a great piano player, but. The voice is really what set him apart. And so we got the great Jimmy Hamilton, who recently passed. He's playing piano on the album. Right. Your brother Billy Peterson on bass. Irv Williams on saxophone. Red Wolf, Jay Mattis on drums. Oh, and your brother Ricky's going to play some organ. And he did some strings for one of the songs. I think that maybe a release on his 100th birthday in the fall would be a great idea. I think great? that's an excellent I idea. I think it is. Jimmy, thank you so much thank for you. coming here and doing this. All right. Darling, you'd be too If you knew, darling All of the smiles were for you I'm all chills, my darling Through and through My cold hands, darling Warm to the touch you Rain hasn't fallen for days now Rainbows are still in the sky must have painted the rainbows shining before my eyes. Can't you tell that I'm. I talk about his early years and when you heard him say he fell in love with music. I guess the South Side of Chicago at that time, um, there was so much music and there were so many people that were aspiring to be musicians. And my dad, fortunately, uh, grew up with some pretty well known jazz artists and they all started jamming and learning how to play instruments whatever they could get their access to whatever was in a church or a church basement the people who were inspiring them I mean people like Earl Father Hines and Louis Armstrong and people like that were doing a New Orleans thing and it was very influential in Chicago because everyone came to play in Chicago so it was the talk of the town, and fortunately for my dad, as a young guy, he came in contact with a lot of these guys, including Earl Father Hines. Earl was older, so he was a mentor for him, and he, he luckily got close enough to him that he was allowed to you know, sit in with the Earl Hines Orchestra and occasionally take uh, Earl's place on stage 
while he went out to visit his celebrity guests who would come in from Hollywood and that. So they, you know, started a lifelong friendship, and it just, he learned a lot of his style from Earl. In fact, in the late 40s, my father's style was compared to, they said it was a mixture of Earl Hines and Nat King Cole. Really? Because of the voice, but the piano style was noticeably similar to uh, Earl Father Hines. Is your dad and your family, are you living in Chicago at this point, or are you? Yes, we lived uh, okay. lived in the south side of Chicago. My dad uh, played uh, quite a few clubs there, uh, one of them, uh, Mr. Kelly's, which was sure. uh, very big, well-known Famous. Uh, it's club. Famous. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's where Ele- you wanted to That's go That's where to. everybody played. Yeah. Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole. Louis Armstrong, everyone. if I recall. Right. Sarah Vaughn and... George Shearing, that's where my dad came in contact with Sarah. He actually played with Sarah for a while. He he was her piano player for a bit. Your dad was? Yeah, through Mr. Kelly. That's where he met George Shearing, and I would assume Bobby Short also, because they ended up doing like two piano shows in New York, the two of them. When you look at the lineups of these clubs, the fact that he was actually there performing and well-respected makes you realize the seriousness of the career that he had. Sweet Lorraine, Sioux City Sioux, a sweet George Brown Caledonia too. Heard the news, a good rockin' night. Yes, I'm gonna hold my baby tight as I can. Tonight she'll know I'm a mighty, mighty man. I heard the good news, there's good rockin' tonight. We moved to South Minneapolis. And it got a nice home there. Very mixed neighborhood, so I went to very mixed schools. It was, it was very nice, actually. That's where it started. And he started playing in uh, the big hotels and nightclubs. Uh, but the hotels are really his support, I think, in those days. That's just where people were going. And in places like the White House, which wasn't a hotel, but he used to play there the quite supper a club, bit. right? Yeah, the yes. supper club scene. Did he do mostly solo work, or did he have bands as well? Well, I think when he first came to town, he did some solo work, but he also did a trio was kind of his main thing, the thing people knew him for. As time went on, many years later, it ended up being a duo where he just had a bass player, uh, David Goodlow, they called him Duffy. So your dad, you were talking about the fact that he could really emulate the Nat King Cole sound. Oh, oh my God. And yeah. and he and Nat sort of gave him the seal of approval. Was yes. This, that, that, talk that, about that. That is so hilarious. Uh, you see, it was almost started as a joke because Dad knew these guys. Like, Nat was a few years older, and so he was also a mentor, but they became friends. All, all the Cole brothers were friends, you know. Dad had gotten Nat's style down so so well that it was just, a, it was about the funniest thing. Because he used to play the piano, and he turned sideways toward the audience, you know, just oh, like yes. Nat. And then he'd start singing like, and he'd, and he'd emulate his piano style. And so, therefore, he, he could literally do a Nat King Cole show. And if you shut your eyes, you wouldn't know he wasn't there because they knew each other so well. Oh, my. Uh, Nat considered him the best there was at emulating him. Although it lies outside of my dominion, if you should ask me for my opinion, went out with good companions and their voices ring. There comes a time before the party's closing Perhaps the old ones have started dozing When one toast needs proposing Raise my glass and I'll sing 
we never touched on whether or not your dad was in oh, the yeah, war. Oh yeah, yeah, yep. He was a uh, army, uh, navy. He was a, he was a second lieutenant in the army, so therefore he was an officer in the invasion of France and was severely wounded doing tank escorting. Tank hit a landmine and he was burned over much of his body. And I remember he did have a bullet hole in his knee. So he spent six months in a hospital in England. Fortunately, there was a piano in the hospital. Yes, and so after he was able to get out of bed, he, uh, well, he played the piano every day and he'd entertain the other patients and was also fortunate enough to be visited by uh, a queen of England. He had a picture taken with her, which was really fun because it, it went United Press International and then was in the Chicago newspaper. So everybody that grew up with him, they're, they're looking at him. Oh my God, it's a, there's, there's Jimmy, you know? But that seemed, to be, cool. that seemed to be the knack for his life. Is like he'd, in, he'd end up in the most difficult situations and somehow be a part of the lives of the most important players in the situation without having to be the most important player, which is always good, you know, just... It didn't catch up with him that he didn't gain equal level of notoriety? That's where the reality of, of, of his experiences comes in. You see, I don't think, I mean, would someone who really wanted the same level of notoriety have left Chicago at their peak and come to a place like Minneapolis? No, he actually was glad to play golf every day and relax and take it easy and have a job at night. He was, he didn't want to be in New York on television. He wanted to be sleeping, getting ready to go play golf in the morning. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, what a, what a great choice. You know what? In his bio, it says he was a decorated war hero. Oh, yeah. Did he receive uh, an award through... And is maybe I'm just projecting. Is that why the queens came to see him, or what? What was that? Well, yeah, story? I don't think there was any additional awards uh, other than the Purple Heart. That's beautiful. And but, in the line yeah. of combat. Oh yeah. my gosh. He was the leader of of men in the war that helped him later to lead bands. Do you think he had a particular highlight in his life? Well, one of the obvious ones would be the honor of sitting in with the Earl Hines Orchestra in Earl's Place. Of course, the uh, proclamation and the day in his honor with the state of Minnesota. You see, the standards were, were high, but the challenges were so great, it, it made them greater than one would have to be to survive in this environment. Now, I guess you had to be great or nothing. It was all or nothing. Gonna have a party. We'll eat some food that's rare. At the head of the table We're gonna place old brother Henry's chair Fight all the local big dogs We'll laugh and talk and eat And we'll save the bones for Henry Jones Cause Henry don't eat no meat What am I gonna do? Without you The voice is Jimmy Bowman interpreting the lyrics and music of another Minnesota resident, Bobby Williams, the lyricist and composer. Welcome in, Jimmy Bowman. Jimmy, as you were growing up, who were you listening to? Uh, when I was growing up, I was listening to Duke and people like Fess Williams. Uh, these were great bands, and Andy Kirkness, Clouds of Joy, oh, Fats Waller, and things like that, you know. These were my uh, my heroes. Jimmy Bowman... Uh, 
Today, as you uh, look at the music scene and think about uh, lyrics and messages, are there uh, any artists out there that seem to get your interest and stir your juices? Well, um, I like some of the uh, words to most tunes. Michelle Legrand writes such great things, and so does Paul Williams. Uh, tunes like um, I Won't Last a Day Without You and just great tunes. Well, I certainly understand your point of view because you've developed such a, a very wonderful presence on that microphone, and it belongs to the school of Johnny Hartman and oh. Nat Cole. And oh, I'm always looking for people that uh, say something, you know. Well, that's important, and it's good to once again touch base with you, Jimmy. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Lee. You've been listening to the Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, hosted and produced by Patty Peterson, executive producer Michelle Jansen. The featured musicians for the Jazz Legends are backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Graydon Peterson on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Miles Hansen from Creation Audio, and Paul and Ricky Peterson from Workhouse Studios. Special thanks to the Jazz Image with Leigh Kamen and Brad Bellows for the Jimmy Bowman interview. Also, special thanks to the Minnesota History Center for the use of the 3M stage for the live concert. The Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is a production of KBEM Radio. 